Welcome to Yes, X or No Audio. Truth and fear. The future is known. The details are not. 2022, October 31st. Preface. I trust that my readership waste little time imbibing the narrative-controlled rubbish we receive from dominant English-language internationally-focused media operating in NATO countries. They are all singing from the same hymn book. Sometimes their professions of being journalists trying to serve the polity are so obviously a lie, they are so subservient to narrative, so complicit, so sycophantic, and so abuse their role that time and digital ink need be expended to expose their hypocrisy. The Valdai speech. The Russian Federation is a nuclear-armed world power. Its president, Vladimir Putin, delivered a 43-minute-long speech at an international forum, the Valdai Discussion Club, with the event scheduled to begin at 2022, October 27, 1300 hours UTC. That's 1600 hours Moscow time. Here are the top and then bottom sections of Foreign Policy magazine taken around 2022, October 30, 1900 hours UTC. This is more than three days after the delivery of the speech, which had live English translation. It is also at least a day after the publication of the official transcript of the speech. For my uh, listeners, I can uh, both of the images are displayed, and I can assure you that there is not one mention anywhere of this speech. Recall, foreign policy is the publishing arm of the Council on Foreign Relations, the top foreign policy and political body outside of the USA government, excluding Wall Street and the Reserve Bank. A Google search for quote Valdai Club. Putin speech, end quote, yields in order four videos, the Kremlin transcript, a press release from the Valdai Club, two articles from TASS, which is a Russian media outlet, a transcript from whoever miragenews.com are, one of the scant pieces of irrelevance from CNN I reported 72 plus hours ago, a report Hallelujah by Russia-Briefing.com and another transcript, this time from dl1.cuni.cz. That looks like a university in um, uh, Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic, I should say. Next, Google shows images. Let me summarize. There is one piece of analysis, only one this author has found two more, a video by the Duran and an article by Pepe Escobar, both of which are included in sources. 
The criticism to come is not aimed at Google, much as I dislike it. It probably has the best web crawlers and search algorithm. The results I listed above are the best it could do. Let me declare my position. The speech given by the President of the Russian Federation is one of the most important political speeches given in many decades. It is an epoch-defining speech. President Putin even informs us of this in the speech, declaring that we are entering, quote, the most dangerous, unpredictable, and at the same time most important decade since the end of World War II, end quote. We shall return to why I believe this frightening truth. The speech will certainly be quoted in academic history. It is likely to join the public discourse of history. It is that big. I may well be wrong and stand to be judged by time. Minimally, it is a 43-minute long political speech at an international event by the leader of a world power. It is either monumentally important or just important. And yet, we have only one analysis found by Google and nothing at all at Foreign Policy magazine. The Disinformation Governance Board at Foreign Policy magazine. From the above lack of coverage by foreign policy, conclusions may be drawn. One of the Foreign Policy magazine refuses to publish any article, everybody knows not to even bother submitting an article, or nobody thought that writing an article was worthwhile. The first is entirely believable, as is the second. The third is almost impossible. Consider the temptation as a policy analyst, given a 43-minute long speech by President Putin, to be published in foreign policy. And you say, nah, why bother? Thus, we have our conclusion. Either foreign policy is refusing to publish, or everybody knows they won't. Whether this is a collective understanding as described by Herman and Chomsky in Manufacturing Consent, or whether it is an explicit directive, only foreign policy and their senior contributors know. The fact remains. A 43-minute long speech, political speech, by the president of a nation, which is a nuclear power with which the US is currently at war, has elicited zero articles at the USA's most prominent foreign policy journal. I mean, literally, what the fuck? What really blows my socks off is that they haven't even published an article attacking the speech. The few references I found the day after the speech are already published. I see no reason to look further in the mainstream media if even foreign policy magazine are silencing articles. The speech has received both a media and foreign policy analysis blackout. I equate this to the Seymour Hersh article, The Red Line and the Rat Line, which was so penetrating and revealing that even a journalist of his stature had to publish in the London Review of Books. I mean, good on them for publishing it, but, like, it's crazy, right? The establishment are not even attacking the Valdai speech. To attack it 
is to give it attention. That is how bad the situation is from their perspective. A brief foray into hypocrisy and cognitive dissonance. Caitlin Johnston, bless her soul, continues to both yell from the rafters and paint pictures for us, both separately describing the insanity of our times. Her prose throws caution to the wind. It embraces the same passion of the hypocrites which it denounces, using judo-like their passionate stupidity against them. Uh, for the audio people, there's a link to uh, a, a Caitlin Johnston article. In fact, there are two in the sources section. I was wrong about the Disinformation Governance Board. It was not a Hindenburg-like trial balloon, but a prototype. Now, as the failing empire of chaos, lies, financial oppression and theft weakens the USA's executive branch has outsourced the killing of truth to the media as the executive is too busy. The killing of people is what the executive does. They are not sadists. They care about profit. It took the most highly decorated marine of the USA's history to see that the USA's executive branch and he himself as a military leader are merely the mafia thugs for a cabal of corporate-owning oligarchs. His name was Major General Smedley Butler. He was of good stock. His mind became clear-eyed. He learned to drop the imprinted propaganda from his eyes and mind, and then see and understand. I have long held the belief that a portrait of Smedley Butler should be hung in the Oval Office as a sort of a, a pictorial lighthouse, a warning and a beacon. Truth versus measurement. If one asks an academic scientist about truth, the wiser among them will say, the philosophy department is down the hall. We deal in a measurement. We minions of empire have difficulty in measurement, see media above, and are left with not truth, but perception. Those with deep personal relationships will have developed one of our most powerful abilities, compassion. The transition from perception to understanding and then to compassion is painful. One is impressed, in the sense of influenced, by the media one consumes. Call it what you will, propaganda, love stories, fairy tales, or brilliantly composed still images of reality. The impression is emotional. In this space we are the ball in the pinball arcade game, flicked left and right, through gates and over roller coasters. If one moves to the slightly wider frame of understanding, then two or more perspectives begin to emerge. One begins to see. For compassion, one joins the parade that has come before us and is with us. 
represented by religious leaders such as Christ and Muhammad, to more modern visionaries such as Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr. and Desmond Tutu. We begin to understand that division is manufactured. Those creating these divisions drive us against our nature. We want to connect and embrace. Sorry for the philosophy. Back to the nails of the argument. Truth is a difficult and effective balm for fear. The current bluster around nuclear weapons of the chain reaction type is hot air. The Russian position is clear. It is written down and hasn't changed since the latest phase of the eight-year Ukrainian conflict. It is their doctrine. As a non-military person, I would summarize it as follows. If you try and destroy Russia, we threaten to use them. Or to put it another way, if you annoy us in some border dispute, we will not use them. All of the hot air has come from the West. Putin has declared that he sees no use of nuclear weapons of any type for any military or political purpose in the current or former Ukrainian territories. This is just a re-expression of the established doctrine. Meanwhile, ex-microsecond UK Prime Minister Liz Truss has been pressing the button metaphorically and Biden and co are nuclear this and thating in verbal flappery. There are many lessons to be learned from the Cold War, one of which was expressed by John F. Kennedy, which is an echo of Sun Tzu's Art of War. Don't put an adversary in a position where their only option is to use all remaining force against you, in which I am paraphrasing both. Ascendancy is achieved by careful manoeuvre to engage at positions of advantage step by step weakening the opposition until they recognize finally that they cannot win. One must preserve one's force and flexibility. The current conflict in Ukraine is not an existential threat to Russia. The problem was a potential genocide and following that the positioning in Ukraine of nuclear-capable missile silos. Russia is serious in its approach to the conflict. We know this because of the formation of the Government Coordination Council, whose mission is to streamline government processes to support their military. Some have reported that the last time Russia did this was during World War II. They have just called and I use the past tense deliberately, up 300,000 reservists, 41,000 of which are already deployed, which is a 150% increase on the previous amount allocated to the special military operation. It is entirely unsurprising that the government would make adjustments to support such a large increase, or, to put it another way, half a million forces deployed. Some truths. As a first truth, the recent offensive in Kharkiv was a wonderful land grab for the armed forces of Ukraine, the AFU. 
It cost them dearly. The small Russian and allied LPR, Lugansk People's Republic, or should it be called Russian Oblast of Lugansk, I'm a bit confused at the moment, forces withdrew in an orderly fashion, losing some men and material. The AFU got hammered by Russian artillery and air force, losing thousands of men and hundreds of armoured vehicles. You cannot reposition land on a battlefield. It is a static asset. It is degraded or improved by weather. The valuable assets are those which can be repositioned, the men and machines. This was not even a tactical victory for Ukraine. It was a material loss, a weakening of potential, a very poor exchange for a static resource of open fields. Over the last two months, the AFU have been attempting to remove Russian forces from the city of Kherson. Kherson is not some open field, but a city with infrastructure, buildings and a population. It, like fields, cannot be moved. However, the building structures provide defensive and offensive positions. Recall the bloody battle of Mariupol. The AFU problem is that to get into the city they need to cross open land upon which they are targets. The value of the position for the occupier is obvious. Kherson is the major city at the mouth of the mighty Dnieper River. Russia has been for at least a week evacuating civilians from the city. Why? And what does that say of the Russian military command and their political overseers? Think about it. My answer? Uh, they see the threat. They know the midterms in the USA are coming and they expect some stupid last-dash assault. They do not have their reinforcements in place. Thus, evacuate much of the civilian population so you don't have to care for them if Ukraine attacks easier. Simple military mathematics. Oh, and that way the civilians don't die either. Less graves to dig and grieving relatives to console. Mia culpa and another truth. The USA influenced, corralled, exacerbated, facilitated, planned coup in Kiev. See sources for the Newland Pyatt phone call in 2014 removed an elected government and replaced it with an installed government. The territory of Crimea, captured after the Crimean War from the Ottoman Empire by Russia in the time of Catherine the Great, had been internally transferred between the two Soviet socialist republics from Russia to Crimea in 1954. The strategically important naval base at Sevastopol was separate to this being under constant long-term, we're talking a hundred years, lease to Russia. When the Kiev coup occurred, one can imagine the call from the leader of the Russian navy to the Kremlin. Status of Sevastopol is close to 100%. Supplies, ammunition, ship, operational capacity, and personnel. We await your instruction. 
I have no idea how the Ukrainian security forces were ejected from Crimea so quickly in a bloodless expulsion, but I can believe it. Crimea is Russia. It has been dominantly Russian since Stalin force migrated the remaining Tatar population after World War II. I imagine a combination of the local police forces, some intelligence support and perhaps even some use of the military police from the naval base convincing at gunpoint the Ukrainian security forces to piss off. Ten years of studying history, even subversive history, is nothing. This author was, like many others, listening to those who seemed informed analysts who were all predicting that Russia would not invade, despite the fact that they had between 100 and 150,000 troops next to the Ukrainian border. Meanwhile, the USA State Department were constantly stating that Russia would invade. I reflect on this now with piercing eyes. The combination of warning with that which had been planned and provoked is an interesting dynamic. A step back in time. I must, must mention this. The Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts have been attacked by the AFU with their integrated Nazi paramilitary battalions, Azov et al., since at least late 2014. The Ukrainian citizens of these oblasts were being killed day by day by day by day by day. Houses destroyed, markets attacked, Water treatment plants, electricity substations, hospitals, bus stops, public streets, orphanages, damaged or destroyed. Civilians bowing their heads in sorrow for what used to be a place of social support and interaction. There is a word for this. Terrorism. But this time, not some radical and non-state actor, but the government of Ukraine directing its national armed forces against its own citizenry. Russell Bentley tells the story of a mother and her children in Donbass. A Ukrainian shell lands on or close to her home, shrapnel from the blast leaves the lower part of one of her arms on the ground. She manages to tie a tourniquet with her remaining arm to stop the bleeding on the other. And with that one remaining arm, she digs one of her children out of the rubble. This is unique. A European government employing its own armed forces, using terrorist tactics in public against its own citizens for eight long years, as observed by the Organization for the Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. 
eight years of sporadic but constant shelling of civilian areas behind the contact line occurred. Eight bloody years of fear, death and dismemberment were enacted upon the peoples of Luhansk and Donetsk by an imposed government for which nobody had voted and the USA had chosen. A personal truth. My mea culpa is not listening to the expert opinion and believing or hoping even that Russia would not invade. No, it is that I did not see the construction of the inevitability. I watched day by day by day the OSCE reports deliberately obfuscated as they were of the use of different armament types in different areas. I had stripped the fudging of the reports. I reduced it to what mattered. Artillery shells. I watched and recorded. I saw the escalation each day. But I've never served in the military. I did not understand. What follows is a graph that I produced, uh, which you can find on my reports from the time. I was sifting through the daily reports, which were basically Excel spreadsheets of text. And I was pulling out of that um, the artillery. I was disregarding everything else. I wanted the la only the really big explosions is what I was concerned about. And you can see it move. So from one point you've got on day eight, which is the 17th, you've got a total of, you know, I don't know, maybe 60 explosions occurring. You know, across the entire contact line, right? And then five days later, uh, on like the 22nd, it's 2,000. My guilt, my mea culpa, is that I did not see this. I did not understand what it meant. Continuing with the text of the article. This is not an OSCE graph. They don't do that. This is the result of your author compiling the text out of the deliberately unattributable source of firing damage reports, trying to figure out what was happening. I bloody well understand now. The two Donbass regions were fighting for their lives. They knew well before I what would happen to them should the Ukrainian forces break their lines. The Nazi components of the AFU would have begun reprisals immediately. This was an impending genocide. The tenfold increase in artillery bombardment was a preparation for a massive operation to overcome the Donbass resistance. A massacre and a genocide would be the result. Following that, Russia would be left with an aggressive nation on its borders, ruled by fascists under the thumb of the USA. Russia was forced to act, both on humanitarian and military strategic grounds. Putin's desire for a settlement via the Minsk II Accords failed because Ukraine never intended to engage I don't blame France or Germany for their failure as mediators. I blame the USA, who were puppeteering Ukraine. This provocation 
which could not be resisted, was engineered by the USA. The war is the fault of the USA, not Russia. The decade ahead. Putin warns that conflicts, or a series of conflicts, are going to occur in the decade ahead. It is simple. China, Russia, and their growing band of we're sick of US hegemony and can see the writing on the wall partner nations are going to build a replacement currency for international trade. This will undermine the US empire. It is already $30 trillion in debt, and as they are unable to profit from the recycling of international trade through their banks, this will grow rapidly. As soon as this begins, the existing lack of confidence in the dollar will grow. Nations will move to more stable forms of wealth preservation. Gold is a natural choice. Another will be this new currency. This spells the end for the US neo-colonial enterprise, which is based on financial dominance. Thus, the US will writhe as dying empires do. It will engage in ill-conceived military adventurism to try to reassure itself. It will use its media machine to convince the world that the real enemy is China and use the little island of Taiwan as the mechanism, just as it has used Ukraine as the provocation against Russia. It is likely that millions of people will die as the result of wars created by the US empire to preserve itself. It will fail. The world is changing. President Putin outlined a vision of cooperation and respect for culture. The question is, how closely to this the new world will adhere? Thanks for listening. Until next time.